welcome to the Eastgate Project Podcast. My name is Ed Ng. Today, I'm happy to welcome Jonathan Poe as my guest. Jonathan was the winner of the 2020 CBC Nonfiction Prize for his piece, Value Village, which, if you're not from around here, is the name of a chain of thrift stores. I've posted a link to the article on the Instagram and Facebook pages, and if you're an immigrant or the child of immigrants, you absolutely need to read it. Jonathan was born in Singapore and grew up in Maple Ridge. After getting his BA in English from Simon Fraser University in Burnaby, he moved to China and then Hong Kong, where he was an editor at Hype Beast Magazine's Hong Kong branch. He moved back to the Vancouver area in 2014. He currently is working on a memoir. Welcome, Jonathan. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Ed. Yeah, I really am looking forward to this because I've been looking forward to this for months because you represent for me a person who, who has experience in an industry that I almost have no contact with. You came to my attention when you won the, the um, nonfiction prize for, this, for CBC. Um, and could you describe how winning that has changed your life so far? Um, it's definitely the highlight of my career so far. Um, I think I think the one thing that has given me is validation. Um, mm. You know, as an artist and especially as a writer, um, it, you know, it's, it can be a lonely life. Um, and the arts are so subjective that sometimes you just don't know where you stand or if you're any good at what you do. Yeah. So um, I think for me, someone like me who's just starting out as a writer, um, so receiving such a positive response from my first, um, what was basically my first personal essay was pretty incredible and it's something that I'll probably cherish for the rest of my life. Um, mm-hmm. It's not something I take for granted. Mm-hmm. Um, I say as a believer, um, it's a validation of my calling. So it's kind of a crazy story, but, you know, over the past decade or so, various people have been uh, giving me like prophetic words that I would somehow like impact culture through my writing. And it was, you know, hard for me to believe mm-hmm. back then, but then, um, you know, this happened and it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a tremendous validation. Um, mm-hmm. The prize has definitely also opened a lot of doors for me. Uh, it's helped me connect with others in the literary community mm-hmm. and also with like a wide range of readers in Canada. Um, so I saw a while back that someone was actually teaching my essay in their high school. English wow. class would be pretty crazy. I'm sure my parents will be pretty, uh, pretty happy with that. Yeah. Um, you know, there are people asking for my book at the public library. So um, I haven't even written a book yet. So it's been <laughs> kind of surreal. Um, but it's, it's very encouraging just to have that kind of uh, interest in my work. Yeah, yeah. And one of the things I really value about that piece in Valley Village is just your voice in particular. It's, I was thinking about it <clears throat> before we started our uh, discussion today. And you have this particular kind of voice that is really magnetic in a way where it's, uh, I don't know, the, 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 the word that came to mind or the phrase that came to mind is Sam Spade, neo-noir, detective novel-ish, <laughs> you know, a little yeah. bit gritty, a little bit like that kind of feel. But it's because you're describing a piece from your childhood, a piece... As you put it, it was a kind of a sepia-toned sort of flavor to it, right? That just like everything's yeah. a bit fuzzy, but this is how you remember it. This is how you understand it. Yeah, and I think, you know, voice is something that I paid a lot of attention to. Um, you know, as, as a writer, you always want to cultivate an authentic writing voice. And, you know, it's, it's a lot of trial and error, but I think I sort of struck the right tone. Um, and also when I write, it's... Uh, you know, my mom's a piano teacher and I have no musical talent whatsoever, but I like to think that I, you know, incorporate like a, a rhythm, a specific rhythm in my writing. 
Mm-hmm. You mentioned your mom. Yep. And this is a more personal question, but a lot of immigrant families uh, push their kids into stable and lucrative careers, like becoming a doctor or a lawyer. It's always the the kind of uh, the trope around Asian families in particular. Um, and it makes a lot of sense as a lot of people don't come to North America with either money or status. And so you want to choose for your kids something where you achieve some prestige and maybe make some money. And it sounds like a good thing, right? So as a rate, as a writer of Asian descent, in particular, Singaporean Chinese, uh, how did your decision to pursue a career in writing go over with your family? Uh, not well. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, yeah, I don't even remember. I've, I probably been disowned like five times by my mom just alone. <laughs> so my parents definitely weren't supportive in the beginning. Mm. Um, you know, they are now because I've, you know, won a national award for my writing, but I think they were pretty doubtful that I was any good or I could mm. make any money from it when I first started out. Mm. Um, it's kind of funny because both of my parents are arts people. Mm. Um, as I mentioned, my mom is a piano teacher and my dad was a librarian who mm-hmm. just retired last year. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I was pushed into the same, you know, what, five professions that are acceptable to most Asian parents. So, mm. you know, definitely like engineer, lawyer, doctor, accountant. Mm-hmm. I'm probably missing another one. But, um, yeah, I just like, I was never any good at any of them. I'm terrible at math, you know. <laughs> I can't stand blood. Um, I'm not good at details, which, you know, means I can't be a lawyer. Um, <laughs> so I think, I think writing was, you know, I grew up around books because my dad was a librarian. So right. I grew up reading um, and writing was always an outlet for me, especially growing up without a lot of money. Mm. I didn't have video games or mm. a lot of toys. So it was always books for me. Um, and then I started writing and I knew I had talent, but my parents sort of encouraged it as a hobby and not a viable career path. Mm -hmm. So I think it wasn't until I was in university that, you know, they sort of realized that I was serious about it, mostly because I transferred out of the business program and into English. Mm. And uh, I think my mom didn't talk to me for about two weeks (laughs) (laughs) because at that time, you know, everyone that I knew, uh, especially a lot of the Asian students were trying to, transfer into the business program and Mm. I was trying to get out of it uh, into a program that they thought, you know, had no real value. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was definitely a bit of a journey. Um, Even when I started working as an editor for Hypebeast, um, I was working a lot remotely and and online and, you know, they would, you know, come down, uh, you know, like tell me to get a, a real job once in a while. Um, <laughs> I think they just didn't understand it at the time, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, looking back on it now, I, I sort of understand where they're coming from. So mm. um, as passionate as I am about you know, pursuing your calling, especially, you know, I encourage a lot of young people to pursue the arts. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe just because it gets so, you know, discouraged in Asian communities. But I do appreciate the fact that in certain generations, you know, your calling was put food on the table. And, and I definitely appreciate the sacrifices that my parents and, you know, a lot of parents in their generation made so that we could have these opportunities now. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and when did your parents sort of make that switch? I mean, you say winning the mm-hmm. award last year, obviously had a big, <laughs> was a big part, of it. but, yeah. uh, but before then, why did your mother start talking to you again? <laughs> I think, I think it was just, 
you know, I, th- I think they just really wanted to make sure that, you know, I, I was, I would be able to, to provide for myself. So I think, you know, the moment I got that first paycheck, I got this first job, you know, writing at Hypebeast, I got, you know, a regular paycheck. I think it sort of calmed a lot of their fears. Mm-hmm. And I think that was when they sort of, you know, came around to the fact that, Hey, I am, you know, you can make money through writing. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of that was just, just um, purely through technology, right? The advances in technology um, and able be to start writing, you know, uh, like for a blog. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if, if like, you know, if it was like 20 years before that, if I would have been able to, you know, have that opening into a, a traditional writing career, maybe a, a, a newspaper or, or through publishing. Right. Right. But the internet definitely opened a lot of doors for me to get my foot in and, you know, pursue this career as a writer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. And just, I mentioned your, your, uh, the place you came from Singapore, um, in your opinion, was there any sort of being Singaporean and being proud of being Singaporean? My, my impression of Singaporean Chinese people is that they're incredibly proud of being Singaporean. It's this thing about, we're not, we're not Hong Kongers. We're not mainland Chinese. We're not Malaysian. We're Singaporean. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's this, there's this sort of nose in the air feel about Singaporean Chinese. Uh, I just met you, so I don't know you super well, but, but was there ever that sense of, how dare you stoop to the level of being an artist when you're Singaporean and you need to, you need to make an effort to do something different and better. Yeah. I think definitely there's, there's, there's definitely a specific Singaporean identity. I feel, Hmm. um, and a lot of, a lot of the pride comes from really being a new country that has risen to prominence in such a short amount of time. Hmm. Um, and a lot of that was really due to, um, um, a man named Lee Kuan Yew, mm-hmm. who was basically, you know, the founder of the nation um, and who, you know, um, implemented a lot of these programs, these really strict programs in order to, um, you know, to, to grow the economy and, and to grow um, Singapore as a viable mm-hmm. country. Um, so because of this, a lot of, you know, a lot of people were filtered into certain professions that would, I guess, benefit the country mm-hmm. um, more so than them as individuals. So mm-hmm. um, definitely there's, there's a bit of um, like a priori- prioritizing certain professions over others. Right, right. Well, yeah. primarily like finance and banking and exactly, yeah. you know, huge like, things like that. And then, yes, uh, what I understand of Lee Kuan Yew is, is that he's known as being like a benevolent dictator, essentially. Mm-hmm. You know, like a, a nice guy and he got the country going, <laughs> but... You know, if you weren't good at math and, you know, you were streamed into like E3 you know, early on, then basically, exactly. you know, hey, you're going to be a janitor. That's it. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, it's it's stressful, right, as as a student to be sort of labeled so early on mm-hmm. um, and, and sort of have your career path chosen for you just based on your early school results. Mm-hmm. And I think part of, you know, uh also like part of the Singaporean identity has a lot to do with the history of like colonization mm. um, by the British. So, you know, like um, I'm, I'm sure it's the same in some sense uh, in, in places like Hong Kong as well, but mm. you know, if you could speak English and um, you know, like English is 
the national language there. So if you speak English, you were somehow better than maybe Asians from other countries who couldn't speak English. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that does remain. I remember very keenly when I lived in Hong Kong, like you did, that just being able to get much better service uh, speaking English. You know, I, I am mm -hmm. Chinese. I look Chinese. But, um, you know, when I, when I go to any sort of local eatery, if I spoke English or just kind of indicated that I couldn't speak Chinese, I mean, that sort of cowed people into subservience in a way where it's this, this automatic internal reaction, I think, about, oh, speaking English. Oh, he's... Mm -hmm. You know, he's educated from out of here, from not, from not from here, probably got money. Um, you know, he's probably a step up above me. And I yeah. think like, um, I think there's something to say about just that kind of, uh, uh, feeling about oneself that's, that's endemic now, I think to most of Asia. Mm -hmm. And it's something I still struggle with because, you know, um, English is my native language. Mm -hmm. I write in English. Mm -hmm. Um, so in many senses I'm using like a tool of colonization, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, you know, in, in my own life. Right. And I'm sort of trying to come to grips with that as, as a writer who writes in English. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and for me as a, as a therapist who does his work in English too. So, and talks with a lot of my clients about colonization in English. <laughs> so yeah, it is, it is definitely something we, we all have to kind of work through is using the, the conqueror's language, so to speak, but using maybe for, for different ends than just as a tool of, of uh, like lording it over others or, or lording our, our different status over others. Exactly. Um, I want to move on just a little bit here, but the subject of value village, the essay um, was about one aspect of your childhood and adolescence in the suburbs of Vancouver in Maple Ridge. So in it, you cover themes of immigration, of racism, and and not poverty per se, but you know you weren't shopping at Holt Renfrew, which is like the, the hoity-toity department store around here. So what struck me about the way you approached it was that it seemed to be a connection between those experiences of wearing secondhand clothing and what you began your career doing when you lived in Hong Kong and you worked for Hypebeast. Uh, so Hypebeast is dedicated to streetwear, to street culture, to fashion, and everything that connects with it. Uh, so as a psychologist, I pattern and I connect uh, the dots of people's lives. And that's something I do for a living. But did you set out uh, writing Value Village, trying to make this connection for yourself? Uh, is this you trying to explain yourself a little bit? Uh, and if so... What did making this connection feel like for you when you connected the dots between some of that early stuff around wanting to blend in, control over your appearance, and then here you are at the other end of it in your adulthood, um, writing about it and thinking about how you want to blend in and, and your own sort of affinity for clothing and for streetwear? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I did. I did set out um, to make these connections through Value Village. Mm. Um, I think I first, I think the germ of that idea really started um, in December 2019 mm. when I visited this uh, a vintage clothing store that I wrote about in the story. Mm -hmm. um, and I had this very visceral and, you know, extreme reaction. Mm. Um, and I wanted to know where that came from. And as, as I sort of dug into that uh, through my childhood, a lot of these same thing started resurfacing, right? Um, mm. So an interest in clothing, um, you know, issues of racism, bullying, um, mm. just not growing up with a lot of money. Mm -hmm. um, so 
I think it was the first time I actually was able to put all those pieces together. Mm-hmm. But in terms of uh, my interest in clothing, I think I made that connection pretty early on, mm. um, though I wasn't necessarily able to articulate it. So I think I could trace that whole passion and, and the interest back to something that happened when I was five years old. Mm. Um, at that time, my family had just immigrated to, to Canada from Singapore. Mm-hmm. Um, they just bought a townhouse in Maple Ridge, which is about 40 minutes outside of uh, downtown Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I remember it was like the first day we, we just got the keys to the, the townhouse. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to the playground that was in the townhouse complex, uh, which had a big yellow slide. Um, and I remember seeing, you know, this, this boy, maybe my age, just go down the slide. Um, and I thought, you know, maybe he wanted to, uh, you know, like, you know, make friends or, or say hi or whatever. And instead, you know, he walked up to me and like punched me in the face. Wow. So to imagine, I was, I was pretty shocked. I was like, uh, you know, why, why did you do that? And he said, you know, you're a Chinese chink. Mm-hmm. And that was the first time I heard that in my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't know what it meant. Um, but I think it was, you know, I, I, I knew that it meant that I did not belong, that mm. somehow he had seen someone who was different. And, um, because of that, I was not safe. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. so I think in that sense, it was a loss of control. Mm. Um, I realized that, you know, the way people in Canada saw me was not the same way I saw myself. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it was a loss of control over the way I was perceived. Mm-hmm. And so I think without really knowing it, I sort of embarked on this journey to regain that control as a kid. Mm. And I quickly realized you could do that through what you wore, right? So um, I remember studying what the other kids wore, especially brand name goods that I could recognize. Mm-hmm. Um, and I realized that they had a certain power to control perception mm-hmm. and communicate like status or value or belonging which is what I really craved at that time. Mm-hmm. So if I couldn't change my skin color, at least I could change my clothes or shoes to fit in mm-hmm. and, you know, uh, stand out in a good way. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think I really made that connection between that. I wanted to write about clothing until I was in my twenties. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, the opportunity to, to write for hypebeast came about, mm-hmm. um, you know, I thought at that time it was, it was my dream job, right? I, I loved clothing. I, I wanted to, to start writing and, you know, uh, that was, that was like the perfect opportunity for me. But I think once I started working, I realized that it wasn't necessarily clothing or just, you know, products that I was interested in. I, I wanted to know the stories behind the relationship people had with clothing. Yeah. Um, you know, why they gravitated towards it as a means of um, expressing themselves or right. um, identity formation, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I think all of these things sort of culminated in me writing Value Village. And, you know, after I wrote that essay, it was it was like a light came on and I realized that this is, you know, this is what I want to write about. Yeah. In a very real way, I would say that you're actually talking about the psychology of clothing, which... I don't know anything about, even though I'm a psychologist, <laughs> but the idea is that um, somehow, some way people have this connection to the things they wear. For you, it was a matter of control. For others, it may be, I think, uh, and also an offshoot of control would be self-representation. Um, I'm rich. I wear Balenciaga sweatpants. Not me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm putting this onto other people. I <laughs> no no judgment. Pants. 
right? Why would you spend three hundred dollars on sweatpants? Oh, because of Balenciaga. Uh, anyway, I don't know. I don't know how much they cost, but uh, <laughs> the idea <laughs> Probably being, more than that actually. Oh my goodness, for real. Anyway, uh, you know, but people do that because they they say like, well, it, there's that sense of like, I am incredibly wealthy. Do you see now how I can spend my money on, you know? not, you know, um, extraordinary things like this. Um, Mm -hmm. And because I'm wealthy, uh, it must tell you something about my worth as a human being. Exactly. And and that kind of self-representation. I see that a lot. I live in Richmond. So what can I say? You know, (laughs) I see people wearing Balenciaga. Balenciaga Absolutely. And and clothes are powerful. I mean, they can communicate so much about who you are. Uh, You you don't have to say a thing. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, someone could see you coming a mile away and sort of make, make a judgment call about who you are just through what you're wearing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, fascinating how you made that connection for yourself between that very, that very first uh, experience of racism and of probably physical pain in that way, being punched in the face. And then for yourself, kind of branching out of there um, into a place of, well, if, I, if I'm going to stand out this way, I don't want to stand out this way. I'm actually going to stand out maybe either for the good clothing I've got or just like blend in as much as I can wearing what everybody else wears. Yeah. And it was tough because, you know, the other problem I had besides not being able to change my skin color or my ethnicity was that we didn't have a lot of money. So, Mm. you know, those sneakers and clothing that would have, uh, you know, that would have helped me fit in wasn't really an option. So um, that's sort of the reason I started thrifting, Um, you know, going to shops like Value Village and trying to find, you know, discounted versions of those things that my classmates were wearing. So I could sort of, you know, uh, camouflage myself, but on a budget. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. So I'm not a sneakerhead, but this is something you alluded to uh, uh, just now. But as I'm not a sneakerhead, I did find this series of videos put out a number of years ago uh, of guys making fun of how people try to keep their, their Jordans pristine. Have you ever seen those videos before? Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's this whole thing. That's a number of years ago now, but uh, that uh, and the advent of kicks magazine. Uh, so slam magazine, I used to love basketball um, still kind of do, but not as big into it as I used to be, but kicks was a magazine entirely just devoted to the basketball shoes. Right. It's my favorite sure. magazine growing up. Right. Yeah. So you know all about it, but that, and I, I seen this on the, like the shelves at, at corner stores or whatever. I'm just like, wow, like there's this whole magazine devoted to basketball shoes. And I'm just like, what's the deal with this? And told me about the subculture that I had no idea existed. Now, psychologically, I might say that there's this idealization that takes place with, with gods like Michael Jordan, um, you know, um, or Kevin Garnett or, uh, Tracy McGrady, those were hot shoes back when I was big into basketball. Um, and, and, and this desire to identify with, you know, number 23. Um, but, you know, and also in conjunction with that, I'd also say the expense of a pair of Jordans or some other premium shoe, it shows taste and identification with your tribe, right? So I didn't find this out until very recently, but an Hermes Birkin bag, uh, doesn't look really like anything. I, I had to look it up to see what it looked like. But I, for those who know, this costs, this is like a $30,000 handbag. Um, but yeah. when it comes to sneakers and sneaker heads in general, what do you think compels people uh, to become a sneakerhead? Well, I think it's, it's different for, you know, sneakerheads now. Uh, I think sneaker culture has changed so much mm. uh, in recent years. Um, but 
um, speaking for my generation, I'm, I'm turning 35 this year. Mm-hmm. I think a common thread uh, between sneakerheads of my generation, uh, you know, who grew up idolizing Michael Jordan, um, mm-hmm. you know, listening to rap music, mm-hmm. um, is, you know, was basically not growing up with a lot of money mm-hmm. or being able to afford the Air Jordans and other uh, you know, sneakers or clothing from our youth. Mm. And as adults, suddenly we have, you know, some amount of disposable income. Mm-hmm. So I feel like being a 30-something-year-old sneakerhead now is almost a form of, uh, like, reclaiming or reliving our childhoods. Mm. Um, if you talk to a lot of sneakerheads, it's, uh, you know, this interest is almost completely driven by nostalgia, right? Um, of collecting the sneakers I could never afford as a kid. Mm-hmm. Um and, you know, somehow it, it makes you feel better. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but definitely growing up, you know, being a sneakerhead was, as you mentioned, a way to communicate which tribe you were a part of. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was very powerful because you could do that without having to say a word, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you didn't have to have a relationship with the other person. Um, so it was, it was magical to me as a, as a kid growing up. Uh, you could communicate... Uh, what sports you were into, what kind of music you listened to, and especially your socioeconomic background, I mm-hmm. think. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you knew which kids had money um, just mm-hmm. based on what they were wearing. And I think, you know, it, it, it was definitely about identifying with our idols, uh, such as Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant. Mm-hmm. But I think, I think it was even more than that. We, you know, we wanted the association with excellence, with success, with status, uh, we wanted to wear the same things that the rappers and the musicians mm-hmm, mm-hmm. wore on magazine covers or in music videos. And um, and also just the, the popular kids in our school who were jocks and, you know, who listened to rap music. So mm-hmm. it was really about the confluence of all of those things that made sneakers and especially Air Jordans, like, right. so cool to us yeah. growing up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what do you think compels sneakerheads in this day and age your generation maybe was like the first generation i know i would say my generation maybe was the first generation that really looked back on i remember jordan ones coming out that's how old i am Uh, it wasn't that too long it wasn't that long ago it feels a lot too long time ago (laughs) um but but your generation behind me maybe uh and part of that is like it became this culture right because kicks came out when i was in university and and so that's like how old i am but like here's this thing now it's become something else it's like yeah it's no longer just about like that, but, but like, you know, now we're talking thousands and thousands of dollars put on a pair of shoes. What do you think compels people now to be involved with sneakerhead? Um, I think now it's, it's become more of a marketplace. It's more of a commercial activity than it is something tied to nostalgia. Mm. Like it was when I was growing up, um, you know, these days it's, it's almost like a viable career for a lot of, um, you mm-hmm. know, like high school kids starting out. They could, start making, you know, a few hundred dollars by flipping a pair of sneakers um, that they would use a bot to buy online. Mm, mm. And, you know, a lot of popular sneakers these days sell out within seconds. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I was growing up, you know, you had to save up for a pair of sneakers and you would go to your local champs or Foot Locker and, and you could actually buy them um, without wondering whether, you know, your size was still in stock or mm-hmm. if they would sell out, you know, within minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think now there's there's definitely a less there's definitely less of an attachment to product per se. Mm. Um, I feel like it's it's all about you know taking you know like buying rare and expensive sneakers, taking a photo with it, 
-hmm. and then, um, you know, and then like reselling it for a profit. So I think there's, uh, you know, back when I was growing up, we didn't have social media. So the way you would show off, you know, your sneakers was by wearing them. Right. Uh, to right. school or, or to church. So yeah. mm-hmm. it's very different that way. I think um, it's it's so much more abstracted. It's not so much about the product itself, but, um, you know, how many likes you can get um, from posting a picture of you with those sneakers and mm-hmm. also, you know, the amount of profit that you can make off of, off of them. Yeah. It makes me sad when you say that because I think some of the joy that you've experienced from out of finding this and connecting this with like, oh yeah, Michael Jordan, like free throw line yeah. dunk kind of thing. You know, that doesn't exist anymore. You know, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's crazy because you talk to some teenagers and they don't really know who Michael Jordan is. Mm. Um, you know, they, they spend $400 on a pair of Jordans, but they think of them as, oh, these are the sneakers that Travis Scott wore or <laughs> Kanye West wore, right? And they've never seen Michael Jordan on the court. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's, it's sort of, that's, that's such a crazy idea to me, but that's, that's how it is now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. My claim to fame in basketball is that I saw Kobe Bryant and Michael Jordan play in person back when the Grizzlies were in town. So that's, yeah, I, re- I remember that. that. Yeah, I remember that game. Yeah, it yeah, was a good deal. yeah. I remember, and and like the only reason you went to the Grizzlies game back in the day was because of the other team, right? <laughs> it was like, <laughs> oh, yeah. was when Jordan's in town or Kobe's in town. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's a little bit sad now that that I think kids, especially and and sneakerheads in the modern day don't make that connection with like a sense of, you know, athletic prowess or, uh, or just uh, that sense of um, freedom and newness and um, excitement over the game itself. It's kind of a game on top of a game, which I suppose it may be a generational thing that I don't understand because that's how old I'm getting, but maybe it is now uh, a little bit sad for me just to look back and say like, Oh, it's just about the money now. Is it? And, yeah, wish it was a bit more nostalgic for them as well. Yeah, and and you, it's it's tough because you know, you're right now I'm I'm thinking about sustainability and consumerism, and mm-hmm. you know I I feel like the more the less of a relationship that we have with the products that we consume, you know, the more dis- disposable they become, right? Mm-hmm. It just becomes an idea or a number. This has been part one of my interview with Jonathan Poe. Please join me for part two. This has been the Eastgate Project Podcast. My name is Ed Ng.